Hello and a very warm welcome to our sunny Garden Organic podcast, full of inspiration and advice, helping you garden the organic way. I'm Fiona Taylor and together with my colleagues, Chris Collins, Sarah Brown and Anton Rosenfeld, we're sharing in the joy of June, peak time for gardeners. All the plants seem to go into fast forward mode. We'll be chatting about weeds, watering and winter veg. Talking of which, if you're anything like me, you've probably been very focused on your tomatoes and flowers from seed and springtime germination. And so thinking ahead to the darker months has dropped down the list. Well, help's at hand. We'll be talking about what to sow now to extend your harvest through the year. Sarah's doing interviews for us and we'll be hearing her fascinating chat with PhD student Imogen Cavadino, who explains the evolution of the slug and just how much it contributes to our garden's ecosystem. There's still so much that we have to learn about slugs, so it's, it's a really exciting area of research to be involved in. Mind you, let's face it, we've all cursed slugs from time to time, especially the damage wreaked to our plants after a rainy night. So Chris will be sharing his experience of organic control of slugs. But before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue. Why not check out their amazing range of organic plant feed and compost at organiccatalogue.com forward slash POD5. And if you're a member of Garden Organic, you'll get 10% off. So lots still to come. But first, I'm off to join Chris in our virtual potting shed. Hi, Chris. Hi, Fiona. How are you? I'm really well, thank you. (laughs) What a brilliant time of year. So much to do, isn't there? But at the same time, things are beginning to really happen. So all your seedlings gone from the flat to the allotment. So talk us through that. Well, that's, yeah, that's a big <laughs> operation, I'll tell you, yeah. really. I mean, it's, I've got my best part of my front room back. I had about 400 plus plants on the go at one point. So I sow them in trays and I prick them out. That's a big part of what I do. So there's all these strays everywhere. Not pleasing my, my good lady, I tell you. <laughs> but what's been happening through May is I obviously harm them off. So I've been taking them out putting them in the sun, bringing them in again at the end of the day. So it's a big operation. So to finally get them in place. So everything's down. Everything I had for the allotment is down on the allotment, is now planted out. So I'm now I'm going from the intensity of a period of propagation into the, to the more calmer waters of maintenance, if you like, although they're still going to be busy. And so that's everything's done. And also the balcony is completely planted up, and that's starting to look really good already. So you're starting to see the fruits of your labour. So walk us round your balcony, Chris. It's a cube of space rather than a flat space. You've got to use the aerial parts of it as well. So I have hanging baskets all along the, the railings, if you like, the bit that stops you falling off the balcony. Half hanging baskets all along there. I have big pots with what I call bouncer plants in. A bouncer plants are the perennial, some lovely old roses. I have some big pots of uh, mixed herbs. But all the rest of it is what I call seasonal. So I would have, a few weeks ago, I took all my organic bulbs out. I gorilla gardened them into the verge in the car park. Oh, well they're, done. They're all in there. Under the cover of darkness. Yeah. Well, I'm telling a little bit of a lie because Mrs. Collins actually did quite a big chunk of it. So <laughs> I couldn't take that away from her. And then I put in all the, again, the seedlings I've grown, the seeds I've grown, I've grown everything from seed has now gone into those baskets and those pots. So there's edibles, uh, aubergine, chilies, peppers, tomatoes, a lot of tumbling tomatoes. And then I just uh, pepper it with uh, colour. Petunias, tagetes, a lot of geraniums, verbenas. So it'll just become this uh, potage of colour and edibles. And it's already been doing little and often seaweed extract feeding over the last three weeks. And I can see the growth kicking in already. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look pretty good. How about aphids? I've got, I found some. I found a couple of black fly the other day on one of the tagetes. But I, I don't have a lot of problem with pests at that height. I'm right up in the canopy of the trees. So I don't, it's not, my biggest problem is pigeons. Yeah, I've got to hear about the pigeons. <laughs> Go on, because that's well, great, yeah. you're not alone. I mean, a lot of us who, who garden in the middle of towns and cities, 
you know, they're the worst. Pigeons are the worst. Aren't well, they're they? just vandals. Yes, and, uh, they are. Yeah, that's what they are. And, you know, and, they, and they probably think we are, but I'm, I, I have a problem with me a lot. But with the balcony, I, I can't, I don't want them nesting there on the roof. So, you, so I have to chase them off. And they just, well, they'll just come and they sit on the baskets. They squash my plants. <laughs> I've got problems with pigeon bum, basically. That's what I've got problems with. And so I've got upside down, I've got chopsticks put in all the baskets. So if they do sit down, it's going to be a bit painful. And then I also have my, uh, I have my pump action water pistol, my, which, <laughs> which is, uh, is pretty effective, I have to say. I, I, I don't know about anybody else, I've got an amazing picture in my head now. <laughs> I get, I do get quite irate. I spot them, especially when they come in a two or a three group. I'm like right out the door, and they recognise because it's a, you know, it's one of them kids' pump action water. They recognise it. It's kind of blue and orange. And they go, oh, here he is, and off they go. It's so you're funny. there with your, yeah, exactly. Rambo has arrived. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, really yeah like that. with this massive looking, looking, water rifle, <laughs> looking vexed. <laughs> <laughs> Get off! Don't think, I don't want your pigeon bum on my plants. Yeah. I can tell you a funny story about this. When I was at Westminster Abbey as head gardener, they'd have all these parties in the summer, the great and the good, and then so they'd wreck the lawn. So I'd repair it afterwards. So I'd scarified it and I'd put all this grass seed down. And one pigeon would tell all the other pigeons in Trafalgar Square, "I know where there's a big dinner." So I'd go into work the next day, and there'd be like five hundred pigeons on my seat, <laughs> and you run at them, and they just kind of flutter up in the air and then just land again. They're completely not bothered by you at all. <laughs> So I got a bass broom and I'd launch it from about 20 metres away and it spins in the air. It didn't hurt any pigeons, by the way, doing this. And I just think they must it must look like a bird of prey or something coming in. Oh. And they would just all go, yeah. And that yes. became my choice of uh, a bird control. Control, control yeah, yeah. Organic control yeah, of pigeons. Exactly, yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Water pistols yeah. or bass broom <laughs> exactly. launching. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Uh, the main problem in my garden, really, Chris, is me because um, I tend to get totally absorbed in raising seeds. And I, I race out to the greenhouse before I come to work. I'm, I'm first back into the greenhouse as soon as I'm back from work, um, making sure it's watered. You know, I, I wake up in the middle of the night and think about it. Um, and then I get to June ready. I'm doing, I'm doing all my hardening off in and out. And then I go out into the garden and it is totally wild. It's completely mm. overrun because I haven't been doing any gardening. <laughs> I've been too absorbed in germination. And I think that's kind of the wonder of it, isn't it? And that's, that's It does take really... over your life. It does me as well. I, you, you, your, eye, your eye gets pulled away from other things and it becomes, that becomes your focus, doesn't it? That's right. You know, I love my herbs and, uh, you know, I, I grow a lot from seed, a lot of herbs from seed. And, and, I, and I, I also try and do a lot of successional sowing so that I... I keep it all going and, and stuff. So so I spent all this time in the greenhouse. I've maybe potted around the shed a bit as well. That's another thing. I do like pottering around my shed. And uh, and then I get to June and, and ready to plant out. And I walk out into the garden and I haven't done anything. It's <laughs> yeah. like a total jungle. Um, so there's a, I've got a bit of both to do. But there's an awful lot of weeds around at the moment. Well, there is. And so I'm quite astounded the rate that weeds move because the allotment. I'm like, suddenly I won't go down there for three days and I come back and I'm like, whoa, where did that lot come from? <laughs> so you are in that, you know, that, that battle. You've gone from propagation into this maintenance time in June and then it's about keeping on top, keeping things watered and keeping the competition down in the, in the allotment environment particularly. I find that the, the, the seedlings come up, the weed seedlings come up and I think, oh, there's weed seedlings there, you know, and never mind that, they're only little. Yeah. <laughs> and then well, you, you turn around yeah. and they're huge. Soon get, I mean, a chickweed, a chickweed plant, which is one of the most common weeds, will set seed, germinate, grow, flower and set seed again within three weeks. So we have that, we have that expression in gardening, weed before they seed, because if you do that, you'll have a less busy summer. I like to plant in lines on drills because simply I can get the hole down the middle of those drills then and that just turns them up to the sun. 
don't have to remove the seed, turn them up to the sun, the sun dries them out and they go back into the soil and you haven't got weed seed to worry about. Brilliant. Of course, bindweed is the one thing that yeah, really is <laughs> well, yeah. what I've What I've been finding is that's now taking up residence, you know, amongst the peas and the runner beans, having a lovely time, going up my cage. Yeah, it's difficult to get rid of him. So if it gets into the rootstock, I've got a grape on the allotment, it's got into the rootstock, so I've got a permanent problem with it. It is. I mean, I can't help laughing. If you go to the Mediterranean and you see the purple one, you know, morning glory, the blue one, you go, oh, that lovely, that lovely. And we see the white one in this country, get it out, get it out. It's funny how we have different reputations in different areas. But it is, I mean, you just keep pulling it organically. I, I don't think that, you know, you just got to keep pulling it, really. Pulling you it, can get it. on top yeah. of it. I yeah. mean, you can. It's just a question of, of just being really aware, isn't it? Yes, um, it is. Um, get it while it's small again, before it, once it's up and, it's, and it starts to establish, it's much more because it weaves its way around everything. Yeah. But it's uh, not my biggest nemesis, and anyone who listens to this podcast will know I'm going to say the words horsetail. Because I tell you, that stuff grows at five centimetres a day, I think. It certainly looks like it to me. <laughs> and my allotment's covered in it. So that is, I'm just pulling that, pulling that, pulling that all the time. Um, it's like we've all got a weed of choice. Yes, we? it is. That's why. <laughs> and I begrudgingly respect it. That's the thing. And what it does is it comes up these feathery tails now, and I, and I pull it. Then it decides to grow flat horizontally. It almost likes it. It knows it's under attack. It's a very clever, clever plant. You just don't want it in amongst your, your peppers and That's your chilies. Right. Yeah. What about composting weeds? Anything pernicious, I will bother probably putting a water vat and use it as a tea. You don't really want to put anything pernicious onto your onto your compost heap, unless it's just the foliage. I think that horsetail, even, even the foliage type of it, will start to propagate in. So you can drown them? Yes, that's what I do with the tea. I just make a massive tea. It's a bit pongy, though. That's the only problem. It does get a bit smelly. <laughs> yeah. I always think, though, it's amazing. You don't know when you have actually truly killed a weed um, because you can leave them to dry and then you know, yeah. then you desiccate them and put them on the compost and then somehow, magically, you yeah. didn't quite manage to... <laughs> well, I like that my favourite defiance is, is, is the dandelion or the thistle because you kind of pull it out and you'll get this great big long root and then a little tip of it will snap off and it's just saying to you, I'll see you next week, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather be out weeding on my lot doing this than I would be coming in like her in the gym and that's my... You know, that's my... I just think being out in the air and all that, there's, there's, there's more gains to it than losses, but... I also want a lot of fresh veg, organic veg this year, so I have to be in amongst it. And many weeds are edible. Many weeds are beautiful. You know, lots of uh, bees uh, yeah. you know, coming into the garden. Brilliant for pollination. So, you know, is it worth sort of leaving a patch of them? I'll get dandelions coming in amongst my hardy annuals and a few things. that I don't mind that. Is well, they're nice? an incredibly important early source of pollination. I mean, there are lots of them. I do tend to deadhead them. That's how I get around it, because otherwise just, you'll have a load of... Like anything, uh, weed is only a, a plant in the wrong place, so you need to sort of manage it. So, yeah, lots of weeding, um, although there's joy in it. And as you say, Chris, helps to keep you fit. Now, we're all saving our water, aren't yeah. we? And we then, are. Well, yeah. I mean, it, it's been so dry in London that it's been hard to save water in a way. It would be interesting to hear from the rest of the country what it's been like in Scotland in the north or maybe down into the west because London's been incredibly dry. I've been up against it. But there's no point watering in 2 o'clock in the afternoon, 11 o'clock in the morning. You need to get down there early or last thing at night and then water really deep so it penetrates the soil. And uh, But I've noticed a much slower growth rate this year than I had last year because the April, April was so dry. And The thing is, we're getting these downpours, aren't we? And I find these short, sharp downpours actually will almost fill one of my water bars. It's yeah, it will. Bit, yeah, the problem you get with them is then the sun comes out and dries it out really quick as well. I think a lot of gardeners would say to you, in London as particularly, you want, we want a couple of days of it just constant just to get everything a really good soak to top the water table up, I suppose. But it does fill your water, but you're right. I mean, I've got a full-size allotment. I'd need about five five of them, I think. But we have a system of, of tanks along the side. I've got a neighbour who's very good at engineering. and We just fill them up. 
But you've got to get down there. I have to be down there 7 o'clock in the morning with my watering can. Now at the moment, I've got loads of seed in, drill seed in, lettuces, beetroot, radish. I've got all my babies in, my tender baby, the courgettes are in, the runner bee. All of those need water now. I want them to establish. The soil's warming up. They get the moisture, they'll get away and you'll get a decent crop. You're thinning out at the moment? I am. I tend to sow quite thick because I, I in a drills because I think that competition amongst the plants is quite healthy you get a better start so i am yeah i have a pair of tweezers and i'll go down and i'll remove every other one and i'll look at the stronger ones the stronger plant it's quite painstaking but while i'm doing that i'm quite close to the ground so i can then take my weeds out etc i can also check the condition of how damp the soil is because the soil tends to dry out on top you get this thing called a cap where you get like a yes. sealant of the soil that can happen quite a lot especially after rains you can go and break that up a bit so so like all good gardeners i think you you we're multitaskers we're doing one job but we're thinking of six or seven others and are you discovering anything any problems with those seedlings i i have that thing where the, you know the seedling suddenly has a dent in it right next to the soil yeah, I never yeah. quite understand well, what that get, is. You can get damping off you get fungus okay. that'll attack the base of the seedling it's pretty um, profuse if you sow it in trays so spreading them out, making sure I call, I snake the slit seeds. So I'll go from the left up, down, all the way across to the right. So like a snake formation, just to keep them spread out. That'll kind of help. But yeah, if they're close together, damping off could be more of a problem, that's for sure. I mean, they are very vulnerable at that stage. When I'm in the, indoors, obviously turning them and stroking them quite early on with the seaweed extract. If you get them up to five or six, seven eight leaf stage and they're quite strong little squat plant, then you're, then you're off on a winner. So now... You know, are we still feeding in June? I, I always, I never quite know. Yes, yeah, you know, so I, I, I yeah. do. I'm, I'm every two weeks or maybe less than that, every 10 days, I'm a little and often seaweed extract. I'll do that all the way through June, halfway through July. It, the, no, the difference is palpable. It's not just a feed, it's a tonic. It, it makes the plant stronger. You get less, the internodes are shorter. You get a stockier plant, more pest and disease resistant. So this stage is quite important for seaweed extract. I'll probably at middle of July and then I'll go to slow release, an organic slow release like Bocking 14 pellet, and that will inject potassium into the soil, and that's for your fruit and your flower. What about the tea you were talking about earlier, where you put all the weeds into the yeah, water yeah, and it turns yeah. it into a, a tea? When, when do you use that? Well, I'll start that as well now. I'll give that a little bit now. I've no idea how scientific it is. I can see a big difference with seaweed extract, but I've used it for many years. It'd be interesting to see, is there a difference between a group of plants that are on weed tea and ones that aren't to see how much of a difference it actually makes. It might penetrate the soil and sit as minerals in the soil. I don't know how much they're taking up, but it'd be something something to look at, I think, definitely. Yeah, maybe some of our members out there might, might give us a hand with that. We're doing a members experiment this year, which is testing uh, home brewed comfrey feed and yes. home brewed nettle feed. And we're asking people who have signed up to take part in the experiment um, to swab their feed. And then we're sending that off uh, to our friends at Coventry University who are going to do a whole load of testing. So we get a data set of home-brewed comfrey feed and home-brewed nettle feed from all over the country, just trying to update that evidence and, and really think again about, you know, the, the best properties um, that are, are available to us so, so freely through, through comfrey and nettle. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. I think you're right. I think that it's kind of something we've always done, but to have it scientifically backed up would be great. Lawrence Hills, that's what he was about with Bob and Fort Healy. He took it from like a, a, a bit of a hippie thing, being organic, into a science, and that's what we're about as well. So anything like that that the members can give us a hand with, perfect. And the time of year for feeding your veg, your flowers, all the rest of it, right now. Get it there, get it get it in the ground, give it as much as you can. Yeah, little and often is my yes, motto okay. this time of year. So I dilute it quite heavily, 20 to 1. 
I like to spray it on with a sprayer on the balcony. I like to, I don't actually apply it for a watering can, but little and often now, I, it pays dividends for me, I think it does. And um, I think if you look, talk to a lot of growers, they're all kind of little and often seaweed extractors. Those that, you know, you see them at the flower shows, they made in the displays. If you spoke to them, I, I think you'd find most of them are into their seaweed extractors. I'd love to know, though, as somebody who does grow quite a lot of leaves and, and, and salad, I'm always leery about putting any kind of feed that, that it would hit on the leaf that I'm going to eat. Mm. I think things like with leaves, I mean, I do do seaweed extract on salad leaves and rocket and stuff like that. But they tend to benefit also, you know, your, your, your nettles might be more beneficial there because they're high in nitrogen and you're looking for that growth. You have to be a little bit careful with it because if they get too growthy, then you invite the mildew. So it's kind of little and often very heavy dilute is really my message, I suppose. Right, okay. And then we talked a little bit about watering earlier, but I'm interested in mulching. Yes, good old mulch. It's really such an important job. I'm doing that at the moment. I don't know if you are. Or- I have to say, this year was brilliant with the mulching. I I, uh, I did a bit of a no dig bed and you know mulched on top with with compost and uh, the weeds that came through. I, I almost just had to rub them and they just came out. Yeah, it was yeah. So easy, even the ones that looked a bit established. Just, yeah, yeah, because there's no grip. You see, it's really open and friable stuff. So I know Fiona, you've uh, you've done a bit of landscaping, haven't you? Uh, towards the end of the winter, you've got a pond in and stuff. What are your main challenges in your garden? Yeah. I'm not one for an incredibly neat and tidy garden. I like it to be a bit wild. It's kind of fun being in the middle of a town and having a wild garden. Mm. I've got some mature trees that just do their thing. They're absolutely fabulous. But but the wildness has become almost unmanageable <laughs> by June. Well, yes, I always find it incredible how quickly nature gets away when it's happy when it. You know, that soil warms up, the days get a bit longer, and the, and the more prominent plants, the ones that are comfortable in this our country and our climate, just kick off, don't they? They, they just do. go for it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look out the back of my window, and I can see my garden, which is, you know, really is a, a kind of a jungle, and, you know, I absolutely love it. The pond has been great fun. When you say landscaping, that's a bit of an exaggeration. <laughs> we did, we put a, a good, really good-sized pond in, and that is covered in, in fly, you know, and life. You know, the bees come there to drink as well, the dragonflies, the damsonflies, uh, the newts have it all having yeah, a great brilliant. time. It's, it's been absolutely a, a real joy and it, you know, it's just come together in just a few months. Um, I didn't mow during May. I'm sure that made a huge difference to the insect life in the garden. Yes. I really mm. do believe that. I was nervous in April and, and sort of, and concerned and worried. You know, now here we are in June and there, there does seem to be a really good lot of insect life. And I, I look out, I see my garden from, from the back of the house my next door neighbour has a very, very neat and tidy garden, which is is mainly laid to lawn with, with three trees at the end. They, they, they keep it quite sort of simple. And then the one next door down to that is artificial lawn. Oh, dear. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I just think, what about that for contrast? You know, you've got the artificial lawn, then you've got the... The, the sort of, you know, your classic kind of lawn and a couple of flower beds, and then you've got mine. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got the contrast. It really is. Well, yours is the way forward, really, I think, that as we learn more. It's, the, the, the artificial grass thing is interesting because we've had the paving over the front gardens. Now we've got the artificial lawn in the back gardens. And, and I think that's just something we've got to make people aware of how bad that is for pollinators. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's we, neatness, I mean, isn't it? Yes. It's all it is. It's like, I don't want to get my hands dirty. I want it all to be. It's like a living room. I want to hoover it. You know, I don't want crumbs on the carpet. It's one of them, really, isn't it? Which is a shame because they miss out. I remember sitting in a park last year and it's full of clover, my local park, big fields of it. And they're just alive with bees and hoverflies and you just see how much good it does. I mean, I know long grass is probably preferable, but short grass is incredibly good for pollinators too. There's a lot of species in it that 
they benefit from. I think people are a bit scared of insects. We, we've talked about this before on the podcast, haven't we? I think oh. people don't see insects as um, as something that they need to value. Yeah, I think so. And it's a shame. I mean, they're vital to our life cycle. And <laughs> it's incredible that dislocation that people have because they're really, really important. And they are in, you know, they're under attack literally from, from uh, the way their environments are changing and the way we, we human beings live. So well, all we can do is sit here and say, you know, don't mow in May, plant some pollinators, get a few hardy annual borders in and let them thrive. Yeah? Oh, like, your good, like your garden. Yeah. Celebrate them. Yeah. yeah, celebrate them. I have got black fly on my broad beans at the moment and I'm just holding my nerve. <laughs> let the ladybirds commence. That's what I say. <laughs> Now, time to find out all about slugs and why our gardens and veg patches are such a good habitat for them. PhD student Imogen Cavadino has been researching garden slugs with Newcastle University and the RHS. Let's hear more as Imogen chats to Sarah. Hi Imogen, how are you this lovely sunny day? I'm very well, thank you. I'm hoping you can persuade us to love the slug, or if not love it, then perhaps understand it a bit more. So Imogen, what got you into slugs in the first place? As a little girl, did you say I want to study slugs? Not at all, actually. No, it was, I uh, originally started out wanting to study dolphins. Um, but um, during my master's, I had to do a module on taxonomy and identification. So I thought, what what group of animals is really disgusting that I don't appreciate that I should probably learn a little bit more about? And slugs was the one that sprung to mind. And there was just this little anecdote in, in the introduction about how slugs will often lower themselves from high objects using a mucus rope. And this is to avoid concussion if they fall. And I was just amazed at the, the idea that a slug can get concussed. I love it. A slug with a headache. That's a wonderful image. So Imogen introduces to the slug. Tell us a bit more about it. So slugs belong to a group of animals known as the mollusca, which is one of the oldest phylums on the planet. So millions of years old, includes things like squid, chitons, octopus. So they are actually very distant relatives of the humble slug. Slugs, interestingly, have evolved from land snails. Um, so they're basically just snails with reduced or very, very reduced, in some cases, shells. So the shell is still present in the slug, but it's often hidden beneath the skin of the slug itself so that it can no longer pull its body into a shell anymore. And that's what we think of as a slug. And they come in all different shapes and sizes, don't they? They do, yes. Yeah. So some species mature at just a few centimetres in length, and we get other ones that have reached up to 20 centimetres as a maximum. Oh, wow. So that's really uncommon for them to get quite that big. And where do slugs live, Imogen? I've always thought of them as living in the soil beneath our plants. That's true of most slugs, yes. We have quite a few species that spend the majority of their life beneath the surface of the soil. So there's actually a very specialised group known as the shelled slugs in Britain, and they live solely beneath the soil surface where they feed on earthworms. Then we have a whole range of different slugs that will move throughout the soil. So they kind of use the soil as a safe place to go if conditions above it are too harsh. So for example, if it's too too wet or too dry or too hot and too cold but you also get some that live up trees so yeah you can find them in pretty diverse habitats to be honest generally they avoid places that are really really hot and dry but generally your nice wet damp garden soil will have quite a few slugs living in it oh which is why us organic gardeners who have their soil in top condition with lots of damp homemade compost perhaps feel they're feeding the slugs am i right in thinking that they're nocturnal animals 
Yes, so the vast majority of slugs are more active at night time, but there are a a small group of slugs that are much more daylight tolerant. You might have noticed it out and about in the daytime, just after it's rained, you see some of those big monster slugs Mm. in the summer months. So those really big ones, often with an orange kind of fringe around the edge of their foot. They seem to be much more hardy, much more willing to come out in the daytime. That's partly because they've got really good defences against predators, so they've got really thick slime and thick skin, so they can tolerate bright sunlight and being very unshowed predators. Yes, you mentioned about slugs being at risk of predators, and I've certainly seen my hens catch small slugs and eat them. What else would catch a slug? There's a whole range of different animals in the in the scientific literature that have been documented eating slugs. So that can range from things like birds, amphibians, reptiles, and many, many different mammals. So hedgehogs is obviously the famous one, but even things like badgers and foxes will use slugs to supplement their diets, particularly in harsh winter conditions where there's not much other food around. And um, so they really do support a whole range of different life. There's also a lot of insects that feed on slugs as well, including a lot of the predatory ground beetles. So having those in your garden is a really good way of that actually controlling slugs as well. And they have a whole, whole special suite of parasites that are quite specific to slugs and snails as well. So they really do support a whole ecosystem themselves. Ah, that's the point, isn't it? Slugs are just part of the ecosystem. It's all part of the web of natural life that we share in our growing area. I always think it's too easy to think of wildlife as attractive things like birds, bees and butterflies. But I'm beginning to realise that all those bugs which live in my soil are also wildlife, as are slugs. Yeah, they really are. And we're only just starting to understand a lot of the functions they do. Some research has also shown that they can be quite important in seed germination, surprisingly. Oh, how does that happen? So some uh, plant species, if they get consumed the whole seed by the slug, it can then pass through the gut of the slug. And as that happens, it wears off the coating of, of the seed. So during that time, the slugs moved from one location to another. It's pooped out the seed and that seed then has a higher chance of successfully germinating because that tough coating has been worn off. So it's almost like the plants have adapted to being consumed by slugs um, and have benefited from that in some ways. And of course, the other things that slugs do is the vital part. They play in breaking down the organic matter in our compost heaps, isn't it? Oh, definitely. Yes. Um, So the majority of slugs will feed on decaying material. So that can include things like other dead slugs, other dead animals, but even things like dog poo is quite a popular one. So during lockdowns, I used to go on a walk through the local woods quite a lot. And that particular woodland seemed to be notorious for people not picking up their dog poo. But for me, as soon as it rained, it was like a slug hotspot because all these different species would come flocking and just be feeding on the dog poo. So I have a lot of photos on my phone of just dog poo being fed on by slugs. Imogen, I have to say you must be the only person who's thrilled to find dog poo on the ground and have photos of it on your phone. So it's just a lovely example of how they really well feed on and break down a lot of undesirable things in the environment. Okay, just two more quick questions. Is it true they've got 27,000 teeth? That's a very big mouthful. Varies a lot between species, um, but yes, usually in the thousands, it is a lot too. But they're absolutely tiny, they're less than a few millimetres each, um, and arranged in these neat rows on a tongue-like structure. It's like a really rough tongue. If you think about a cat's tongue, it's kind of a bit like that. And how do they see where they're going? So they actually have really poor eyesight. So they, again, they mainly seem to use chemical cues, so a kind of sense of smell or taste, that they don't really have noses, but they kind of detect different chemical cues through their skin, but also through the sensory tentacles on the front of their head. They do have eyes, but the eye spots are very primitive. 
So they can only really see shades of light and dark. We don't think they use vision much for navigation. Ah, so I've got little lettuce seedlings coming up now. Beautiful, beautiful, bright little green plants. How does the slug know that they're there? Oh, that's a very interesting question. Um, it's probably to do with the chemicals that the plants are producing or the chemicals that are being let out into the environment nearby. So they can probably smell it in a, in a way, in a very basic sense. Mm, and how many slugs am I dealing with? Can you give us a number of slugs that might be in the average garden, for instance? It's a very difficult thing to predict because it varies a lot by geographic location, soil type, pH. Um, weather conditions will have a huge impact as well. It's quite difficult to predict the size of the population, partly because there haven't been enough studies done on that, but also because a lot of the slugs will be living beneath the soil surface throughout different periods of the year. It makes it very difficult to carry out a direct count and see exactly how many are in the average garden. I'm hoping that through my research, we can start getting an idea of numbers and how this might fluctuate throughout the year. But at this point, it's very difficult to put a precise number or precise estimate on how many slugs are in the average garden. And in truth, it would only take one slug to eat a row of lettuces. So maybe the numbers game is irrelevant. Yeah. And it's also, it's not, you've also got to think about what type of slug are making up that proportion. So you might have loads and loads of slugs in your garden, but if they are detritivore species that are mostly dominant. So in that case, you might actually not have that much damage, even though you have loads of slugs, because the slugs in your garden might specialise in eating something other than your garden plants. So my parents, for instance, they had a big problem with slugs one year in their potato patch, because they, they were growing potatoes in that little section of the garden. And they were being heavily damaged by slugs. And luckily, because I study slugs, they gave me a couple of them to identify and we realised it was specialised in damaging root crops, which is why they were having such an issue. So with that knowledge, the next year they actually planted that area with lettuces and cabbages. And they didn't have much of a slug problem at all because that species doesn't feed on those plants particularly. So once they kind of understood their enemy a little bit better, they were able to kind of mitigate for that. Saying that, they didn't learn their lesson because the next year they planted uh, parsnips in that patch. And it turns out that species enjoys parsnips as well. Oh, what a very useful daughter you are, Imogen. How very handy. Now, how many different species are there? So there's currently about 44 species in Britain. We will say about because there's a bit of debate about whether some are separate species because they can hybridise. And there's also more species constantly arriving and establishing as well. OK, but not all those have the same diet and not all of them are munching on precious young plants, it seems. So it's thought that it's only about nine species that actually cause widespread damage to plants. The rest might do a little bit of damage, but not enough to be a massive problem for gardeners. Aha! Uh -huh. Here is the crucial question. Can we identify those nine most wanted? Unfortunately, this is where it gets really tricky because um, a few of those look very similar to others that cause more of a problem. So a classic example is, again, those really big ones with the orange around the edge. That's a complex of five different species. And one of those is a major invader from the European continent, causes a lot of plant damage. And two of those are native species that cause a lot less damage because they've been part of our ecosystem for so long that our plants have kind of developed different ways of living alongside them. So they tend to cause less of an issue. But it means for us, as people try and identify the slugs that have the problem, it can be very, very tricky to know exactly which one in the garden is responsible for the damage. It sounds like quite an under-researched area. Yes, yeah, there's still so much that we have to learn about slugs. So it's, it's a really exciting area of research to be involved in because there's just so many unknowns still at this point. But it does make it quite frustrating because when we're trying to provide nice, simple, clear answers to gardeners, sometimes we have to say, you know, we just don't know enough. 
Okay, so I'm beginning to get a better picture of Mr. Slug, and there's no doubt he plays a valid part in my garden ecosystem. But Imogen, I have to admit, I still find him hard to love, and on the whole, slightly disgusting. Do you too? A little bit, but more because of the slime and getting the slime off your fingers is very, very tricky. Oh yes, it's the mucus. But interestingly, I read somewhere that the slug leaves a trail as a kind of marker, which is not only individual to them, but they use it to find their way travelling back along it. Yeah, there's many different functions of the mucus trail. So it's partly just how they move because they always lay down this layer of mucus to glide over. So they're never really directly touching the surface. And you're right in that they can leave a lot of chemical cues in that trail. So it can be used as a kind of basic form of communication between different slugs and different species of slug even. So they can pick up from those chemical cues kind of a bit more information about the slug that's left the trail, um, potentially whether that slug is mature and whether it could be a potential mate. Again, this is quite a new area of research, so we're still learning a lot about it. Um, but saying that, even even Charles Darwin, I believe, made some observations about, you know, slugs following other slugs' trails to save energy. So, yeah, it's an old piece of science, but also quite a new area that people are looking at. Which brings us neatly onto your own researches. Tell us a bit more about your work. So the main question I'm looking at is just trying to get an understanding of what species of slug are present in our gardens and which ones are causing problems for gardeners. So this is by collecting slugs yourself? We're doing that through citizen science approach. Um, so I've got two main projects that we have the cellar slug survey, and that was just asking them to look for two particular species of slug. One which is in uh, appears to be within a quite severe decline in the UK, and the other, which is a relatively recent arrival, which appears to be becoming very abundant and widespread. So that was the cellar slug? Yes. For us as scientists, it's just to get an understanding of a uh, potentially invasive species and to understand where it is. Um, but for gardeners, it was also really interesting because both the species we were looking at are detritivores, meaning that they only feed on decaying plant material or occasionally things like fungi, lichen and algae. So they actually don't directly damage plants. Brilliant. I'm going to look it up on the internet now. The other project that I was running is the Slugs Count project. So this was much more specific. We recruited 60 gardeners across the whole of the UK and asked them to go out into their gardens once every four weeks with a torch at night and just collect and record any of the slugs they found during that search. And we can then compare that information across all those different gardens throughout the entire year um, to get an understanding of what slugs are present when and how this changes throughout the year. Because you know that some species are more abundant in the spring, some are more abundant in the autumn. And we can then link that to what we know about those individual species to understand whether they are potentially a risk to garden plants or not, and hopefully tailor the advice we give to gardeners. Oh, I would have loved to have been part of that. But you say the survey has now finished. So we, we finished surveying in October 2021. So I'm at the stage of trying to write that up. We've got a huge amount of information. It's been absolutely fantastic. So yeah, very complex actually looking at gardens because they are so variable in terms of what you might have in your garden. Of course. Still a lot to do before we can start um, sharing the results. But what we can say is that this was based on a study from the 1940s, which was kind of the last detailed study of slugs in gardens. And we can already see by comparing our results to their results that our slug faunas have changed dramatically since then. So the, the type of slugs we've got in our garden and the abundance and proportions of the different species present in gardens has changed a lot. So it's going to be really exciting sharing that information. 
Wow, that's really interesting. So you're saying that in the past 80, 80 years, there have been some fundamental changes in our gardens that have caused the slug populations to change. What do you think those changes are? I think it's a mixture of climate and our changing climate, allowing more species to establish, but also just a huge increase in global trade. Um, slugs can be moved easily with plants, but also soil, but also a whole range of different commodities that you just wouldn't expect. So they can hitchhike on shipping containers, all kinds of stuff. I think it's partly just that that massive increase in trade has allowed more species to accidentally be moved between countries. You mentioned that the research took place over different times of the year so that you were able to monitor slug populations in spring and autumn, for instance. Yeah, we decided to make our study year long. So we also got gardeners go out in the winter. And traditionally, there's a study from agriculture, well, many studies from agriculture that say if the temperature, air temperature is below five degrees you will not have much slug activity. Um, we were really surprised that we had our gardeners go out in snow, in sleet, in hail, and they were still finding slugs. And that was simply to do with that diversity of habitat. Um, so, for example, we had one lady go out, it was minus five in her garden. So wow, massive congratulations for her for bearing minus five degrees for half an hour to search for slugs. They sent me a wonderful photo. It's very nice. Um, and they found 20 slugs in that time, which we just weren't expecting. But on further kind of follow up with her, I asked, you know, where did you find these slugs? And she said, I found them on a south facing wall. And during the daytime, it had been quite a warm, sunny day. So that wall had absorbed the heat. And then at nighttime, although the air temperature was freezing cold, the, the, that surface temperature stayed a, still a nice, reasonable temperature for the slugs so they could come out and be active and forage on that surface. And again, it just highlights how variable those little micro habitats and microclimates are within a single garden. Ah, and I always thought that slugs hibernated over winter. They don't hibernate as such. They what we call estivate, which is kind of less dormant than hibernation. So it means that they can respond very, very quickly if environmental conditions do improve. And am I right in saying that slugs on the whole hate really dry conditions? Yes, yeah. So quite often that will be going down into the soil. Um, sometimes they'll create little cells within the soil itself and line that with mucus and they'll just wait out until, you know, conditions improve and it's less dry. So yeah, they have very good adaptations to, to environmental conditions. Okay, this seems a good point at which I'm going to ask you the burning question. How do we prevent slug damage? We have got plenty of practical advice on the Garden Organic website, but personally, I think there's one key thing, Imogen. Your plants have to be strong to withstand attack. We've already mentioned those delicious, very young seedlings, but I also think a weak plant, one that is struggling, perhaps it isn't getting enough light or moisture, is easy prey for the slug. Would you agree? Definitely, yes. That really does seem to be the case in that if you have a healthy plant, it can resist or it can survive some damage and regrow happily. Whereas if your plant's already stressed, you know, having something else feeding on that plant is just going to add to that stress and cause your plant health to decline. So yeah, it's all about having the right plant in the right place, make it happy, and then hopefully it will resist any damage from slugs. Which brings us on, of course, to slug pellets. Now, I know the gardening world is divided on this, and even within organic gardeners, there's discussion as to whether it's right to use slug pellets or not. What are your thoughts? So slug pellets, we tend to recommend as a last resort um, for uh, here at the RHS. So we'd always say, you know, at the end of the day, if nothing else has worked for you, slug pellets are there and they are available. 
the most important thing is to use them correctly. And that's a lot of the problems we do see is people applying them far too liberally. So it's very important to follow the instructions on the packet. That's often something as little as one pellet per 30 centimetres. Oh, that's interesting that you say so few pellets. Don't overapply them because at the end of the day, all you're doing is you're just putting other wildlife at risk. Because although ferric phosphate pellets are considered organic, they can still be harmful to other organisms if in high concentrations. I think it doesn't help that the containers are cunningly designed with open, wide open tops that encourage us to be more liberal than is needed. But perhaps I'm just being cynical. Are there any plants which are particularly slug resistant? Um, so there is a lot. There's always going to be exceptions to the rule where, you know, one population of slugs defies all odds and feeds on that plant. But generally we say with things with thick, waxy leaves, um, succulent plants as well seem to be relatively resistant to slug damage and things with really rough, hairy leaves as well. Um, because if you think about it, you know, that's quite a difficult texture. Um, it's generally the really soft succulent plants like your hostas that that slugs really do enjoy. Ah, yes, hostas. I gave up with them a long time ago. But, you know, I'm not sure I miss them. I'm looking out on my borders and I can see foxgloves, daylilies, astrantia and snapdragons. They're all merrily blooming and ignored by slugs. As I say, there's lots of information on the Garden Organic website, which actually includes a list of flowering plants which are resistant to slugs. Imogen, I think the time has come for me to say thank you. Thank you for helping us to see slugs in the round, not necessarily as our friends, but certainly to learn a little bit more about them. And good luck with all your researches. Thank you very much. Well, that was absolutely fascinating. To... Yeah, it was, wasn't, wasn't it? it? Yeah. Amazing. Um, the thing that I was really struck by was this sense that slugs tend to congregate in certain parts of the garden. Have you found that? Yes, I do. Certainly with the uh, snails. I, I, I was pulling out some wallflowers that just finished flowering for the compost bin last week on the Ottman, and I found about 50 of them all huddled up up against the wood of the uh, of the raised ah. bed. I do remember um, hearing a talk by Decca McVicker some years ago um, where she was having a real problem with snails and she was gathering them all in a bucket and walking them down the lane. Then she started to get slightly obsessed yeah. and thought that it was definitely the same ones that were coming back, so she started to mark them. Yes, and they are, they are, they're boomerangs, because they will return. It's... And I'm, I'm a big fan of slugs, I know that sounds really peculiar, but it just, it goes back to that thing of wanting birds in my garden. Yes, certainly, I mean, no bird life's no garden, as far as I'm concerned. And you just have to maintain. You just have to keep on top of it. We chatted about weeds earlier. It's the same thing. That reason. So you've got to use multiple ways of, of controlling them. I mean, hand picking is really my biggest one. I have a pair of barbecue tongs, and I'll, if I'm down there early in the morning, I'll just get a plastic bag and I'll fill those up as many as I can. So what about barriers around your plants? I mean, I've had success with copper tape on on pots, yes. for example. Yeah. What do you think? Of Dried um, coffee grinds I find works. Mm. People put them on wet; they're useless. You need to dry them out. But obviously, not everyone drinks masses of coffee. Beer cups is brilliant. You know, I, I think they really work. Just sunken cups of beer. What about oats? Apparently, if you put bran or oats down, yeah. then it will swell them up, and then they're and then they're more easy picking. For yeah, birds. I wonder whether this. I'm not sure about this. Whether this is an old wives' tale or not. To be honest with you. <laughs> well, I am an old wife. <laughs> I just wasn't implying <laughs> that. But, or an old old husband's tale. Then let's uh, keep it equal. I'm, never, I'm not sure. I mean, again, maybe that's something another uh, an experiment we could carry out to find out whether whether it's true. Certainly encouraging bird life onto your allotment or frogs as well. 
If you've got a pond, frog life, we'll, we'll keep the, uh, the amount of studs and snails down. It's all about balance and mixture of sight in organic gardening, isn't it? The more diverse it is, the less chance, you know. But I can sympathise a little bit if, you know, I had a, I had a tray of runner beans, really looking nice and big, and then they just got eaten in one go last week. The whole lot stripped, you know, and I took them out, the root trainers out, and there were four really fat slugs in the, in the tray looking very well fed and happy with it all. Basically, if, you, if there's a lot of moisture around, then you've got to be really vigilant. Also, Imogen mentioned you've got the right plants that, that slugs won't attack. Then you, you're going to have these little oases where you're not going to have to worry. Yes. So there is that plays into it. But most plants, they won't touch. The other thing we've not mentioned, which is quite important, is when you get to, the plant gets to a certain stage, there's a lot of lignin in the leaves. They don't want it anyway. They want that brand new, fleshy, soft foliage. That's what they're after. And as, as Imogen says, um, I, if it's really, really bad, then you can use maybe phosphate pellets. But I only use them as a really, really last resort. I don't use them at all. I feel quite strongly about that because I worry about effect on, on other organisms, as, as she said. But as you say, they're not going to touch a lot of the established plants. So actually, the reason we're so worried about it is because we raise these babies. Yes, it is. is, It's uh, it's that um, we put a lot of time and effort into. So we need to be thinking about mixing our planting because then you're going to have plants that 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 are slug resistant. But also, it's all good for biodiversity. I think with slugs and snails, it's it's a multi pronged effort. Picking over, putting out plants when they're a bit more mature, so they're not so tasty. Barriers, encouraging birds and frogs into your garden or your allotment. Just try and mix that all up together. And then what means you won't get rid of the problem completely. So, but it just means you they won't hopefully demolish a whole tray of runner bean. So time to open the post bag now. And I'm here with Anton and with Chris. We're here to look at thinking about what to grow in the winter. So the first question we've got is, last year I had great success in growing food that I harvested throughout summer and autumn but my beds sat empty in the winter. This year, I'd really like to extend my growing season. Can you give me any tips on how to do this? And when do I need to start planning and sowing? Well, that's a big one, I think. I I guess people don't often get so excited about growing all this sort of summer veg that they just forget that there's stuff to grow over the winter as well. And it does require some planning in advance. And I think that's where the problem lies. That is the rub, isn't it? (laughs) So some things you do actually need to plan quite early. Things like leeks, you need to be sowing them in in March sort of time. So you might miss the boat now for those. But there are some things that you can be sowing now that will still be okay for growing over the winter. Kale, if you get a move on, you should be okay. Um, You want to make sure that it gets a good head start. Otherwise, I find it tends to sort of sit and sulk if if you've got plants which are really sort of quite small when you put them in in the autumn. You wouldn't direct sow the kale? I always tend to do things in pots first if I can. It just means the pests are less likely to get onto them. Um, Chard is a really good one. You could be starting that now. You've even got a little bit of leeway on that one. So for colder climates like like up in Scotland, you've got plenty of time, even into sort of July sort of time. And then there's winter salads. They're a really sort of exciting thing to have over the winter. I think actually the salads over the winter are more exciting than the ones you get in the summer. Because <laughs> if you like the taste of mustard, you will love winter salads. I mean, there's all the dunas. Winter red mustard is a particular favourite of mine because it gets hotter and hotter throughout the winter. Blow, blow your head off some of them. <laughs> yeah. Then there's rocket as well. Would you the sow them at the end of the summer? I, I tend to sow them beginning of August and then they've reached a reasonable size because they grow quite quickly. Mm. 
And so they're sort of ready by the autumn to plant out. And then you've got things you can even sort of sow in autumn as well. You've got your overwintering onions, you've got garlic as well, broad beans, all those sorts of things. Yeah, I put broad beans. What about root crops, turnips and swedes and stuff? You can leave them in the ground, can't you? You certainly can, yeah. Quite often July is a good time for sowing those because then they're less likely to bolt. Yes. And, and particularly stuff like kohlrabi, July is about the best sort of time for that. You can just graze them as you as you wish then, can't you? Yeah. Exactly, yeah. So yeah, there's plenty of potential. If you don't have any crops in, then I'd really recommend getting a green manure in. We really want to be yeah. avoiding that bare soil. Yeah, and anything that stops it leaching or getting too waterlogged or and conditions the soil as well. Exactly. So, so I think there's no such thing as putting the, the soil to bed over the winter. It's interesting, isn't it? Because we all get in a real sort of planning frenzy around about kind of January time. And then and then come June, you know, around about now, we're, we're releasing the fruits of our labours. Then we're actually what we should be doing is stopping and doing the next planning phase. Have you got any sort of tips around how we can sort of get into the habit of year round planning? I think it is really thinking ahead. Uh, it is sort of really sitting down and think, not getting too carried away with just those summer crops. You've got to include the winter crops in your planning at the start of the year. So it's quite right a good now. idea to put a chart up, isn't it, saying sow this now, literally, on a, if you put that in a shed. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much. There's so much information there, and I'm certainly going to be putting an awful lot of that into practice. Moving on now to grass and thinking about our lawns. Did anybody around the table do no mow may last month? I certainly did. I actually have a garden that's designed for disabled access, so I did a no weed may. <laughs> that's a good idea. So yeah, it's all right, isn't it? Yeah, that's very good, isn't it? I think quite a lot of people did join in no mow may. You know, I mean, I've been a little bit heartbroken in my car park. There's a patch of grass behind it. A lot of stuff was coming up and flowering, and the council kind of rolled in with a gang mower and heaved it all down. Well, it was just the wrong time to do it. There was so much stuff in there flowering. And I, but I think that more and more that's become less common. I think people are starting to realise you can just let it go. You don't have to be so tidy all the time, I think. It's a brilliant campaign, isn't it, by yeah. our, our colleagues and friends at Plant Life. I just think, you know, the whole idea that, that, that we can all just relax and let everything grow and then watch what happens... It's brilliant. I, I, I spoke to a neighbour the other day and suggested No Mo May. They'd never heard of it. And they did slightly look at me a bit askance because <laughs> as far as they were the, concerned, you know, grass is there to be cut, which is what some people feel. Absolutely something. nothing wrong with that. You, you, uh, you've got to remember that people have families and dogs and stuff. It doesn't mean to say, I mean, a month is not a long time just to let it go, is it really? You know, you can cope with that for that amount of time. So I just think that you can still go out and play on it and kick a ball on it. It doesn't mean to say that ends. But you've just got those pollinator sources, that sources of nectar that will feed the, the, the bees and the butterflies. Absolutely. That brings us on to another question that we had. It's a kind of a sporting question, really. Yeah. So do you, Chris, you're the expert on this. So do you have any tips for maintaining a lawn that is used an awful lot for football playing? Yes, well, you need, I mean, the main factor for it is you need the sort of species of grass that's going to tolerate it. So usually if you had to say a rugby pitch or a football pitch, the predominantly the seed mix would be a ryegrass. There are lots of types of ryegrass now. You know, there's many, many kinds. Of, um, but I also like to mix a little bit of what you call Kentucky blue in there. You get that and that's quite a drought resistant, stops gaps forming when, when you get dry periods. But the real issue with um, lawns is length of cut, basically, because people get the mower out and they just shave it and then they wonder why it goes yellow as soon as you get a bit of sunshine. Um, because you, you chop the head off something, it's not going to be out of function. So I would do what I call a rugby cut, which is two and a half centimetres minimum. And every mower has adjustable height on it. 
I actually, I've got a bit of grass running down the sides of my, my, my allotment. I actually like just a push mower, non-petrol. They're quite good fun to use as well. But just don't cut it down too far. And also I like to scarify. And scarify is like, I'd use a rake for it probably on a small lawn. It just basically um, breaks the stolons, the underground stems. And what that does is it causes the grass to tiller, which sends up new tufts of grass. So you get a thickening sward. It's a form of propagation. You don't need to go deep. Just brush over the, the, the lawn with your rake. With your lawn rake and it'll just take out you see this thatch this dead grass start to appear that can go on the compost bin but it just breaks those stolons up this, this time of year is quite a good time to do it what grow. is stolon stolon is an underground stem it's how the grass moves around really it's how it spreads so if you have a tuft of grass and you went and you dug beneath it you'd probably find a stem coming off it and then it sends up another tuft so if you break that you get more tufts I think that's very interesting that the types of grass is key for if you if you're mm. going to be really using a lawn and there's going to be people kicking, kicking a ball on it every day. Well, you, I suppose it's worth pointing out as well. You know, if you if you want to um, have a bit of wildlife, you can have a big area of two grass, two point four centimeters long, and all the pollinators with it. But leave a little streak on the side where you put some bulbs and let it go long grass, and then you're also accommodating nature. It is possible to do both. Well, someone else has asked us a question about a large grassy area in their garden, and it means that they end up with lots of grass clippings. And last year they put them all on the compost, but it ended up a soggy mess by the sound of things. Can you suggest alternative uses for, for grass clippings? Well, the mistake they probably made was putting just too many green materials into their compost bin all at once, mm-hmm. and then it got compressed and then started with air, and then it started to turn anaerobic. So st- rather than composting, it was actually fermenting, and that's why they end up with this sort of slimy green mess. So if you can mix that in with a bit of cardboard and we... Do you break that up to tear it up? You, you can tear it up or you could put it in layers as, as well with, with the grass. Either, either is fine, really. It, it will all break down pretty quickly. But that's sort of adding some brown materials to balance out those green materials, but it's also providing some air spaces as well. So you need the air circulation, don't you, to stop that anaerobic stuff. And some people put cereal boxes in them, don't crush them, don't they, to create air pockets. Is that a good idea? Any of those things mm. will, will work. Just getting those air spaces in. I often like to keep a little pile of dead stems from the autumn as well that are sort of crackly and that produces lots of nice sort of air yeah. spaces within. Things. That's a good idea. The other thing I would maybe do is also, is would you use it as an accelerant? I mean, grass is quite valuable stuff because it heats up so quick, doesn't it? Grass clippings heat up so quick. So if you've got like a bay of um, leaves and you're making leaf mould, you can accelerate it by mixing grass into it, grass clippings into it. That should work pretty well because you're adding a sort of source of nitrogen as well, which will help to speed up the breakdown of those leaves. You can also go over those leaves with your mower. As well. Chop them up finer and you yeah. get a quicker breakdown. Okay, another brilliant use for, for, for grass clippings. What about using it as a mulch? I think it depends on the area. If, if, you're, if you've got quite a relaxed garden, it's quite wild and you're quite free garden, then... It makes a brilliant mulch because it will retain moisture and it's you know it breaks down, feeds the soil. If you're in quite a high ornamental area, you can get bits of the stole on in the grass clippings, particularly if you cut it short. You might then get grass growing where you don't want it. That's really really interesting. Although it's supposed to be so nutrient rich, isn't it? That that people do use it in the in the veg beds, don't they? Yeah, it is possible to do that. Anything sort of green is sort of valuable source of nitrogen. One of the gardens I used to work with in Birmingham, and there's a refugee garden. Um, that some of the African people there, I think the people from Zimbabwe, would actually bury the grass about 
at a depth of about four inches, and it would break down in the soil and then release those nutrients for their veg beds, and they've got lovely veg growing there. That's amazing. So burying it's a really good idea, mm. I like this, because you're putting it to full use there, aren't you? It is. It's, it's like a like a bean trench. Yeah, but so you can put some newspaper for water retention, some grass clippings for nutrients in a trench, and then plant your beans on top of that. Yeah, you want beans on top well. of that. I, I remember being told that if you scattered amongst your onion sowings a very, very, very thin layer, that is supposed to be magic, but again, maybe another old wife's tale, Chris. <laughs> or old husband's. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, from time to time, people just leave it on the, the lawn, don't they? You know, you, you mow along and, and perhaps, you, you know, you're mowing quite frequently and the, the grass is quite quite short and you can just leave it on the lawn and it, it makes the grass look a bit greener for a couple of days. Is, is that is that a, a way forward? Well, I think it is, it, it is a matter of personal taste, really. I think if the grass <laughs> is quite long and you, and you just get these reams of grass in lines, it can look a bit untidy. And it goes yellow. <laughs> yeah, and then your kids roll about in it and it's all stuck to their face when they come in and all that. I prefer to box it off because I'd rather use those clippings more focused like in my leaf mould bin or anything like that. I mean, if we're in for a really dry summer, there is the whole problem that grass does tend to then go yellow, doesn't it? Yeah, well, it does if you cut it too short. It'll never go yellow if you leave your rugby car. I've never seen a yellow lawn when it's left the right height. So I've seen on Brighton Parks where I've seen the town centre where it's been cut short go yellow and it's really deep green on the edge where they where they cut the game miles, cut it longer. So it does depend on height of cut, definitely. So if we are in for a very dry summer, then actually the advice presumably is to mow less. Yeah, I think so. And also what happens with the warmth, the heat, is it will slow down anyway. I mean, there is also an argument that by returning the clippings to the lawn, you're returning the nutrients, mm. so you then have to feed your lawn less. That sounds a wonderful organic solution to me. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast for June. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope we've enthused you to observe ecosystems up close and perhaps to have a sense of appreciation for the slugs and snails in your garden. Is that too much to expect? I've a new respect for them after hearing how they support a myriad of other organisms from tiny parasites right up to amphibians and birds. Mind you, I've got an image in my head of Chris with his water pistol trying to move the pigeons on. Something of a modern take on organic pest control. Meanwhile, if you're wanting to delve in a bit further into what you can do now to have food crops throughout the year, we're running a special Growing Winter Veg course here at our demonstration garden at Wrighton on Wednesday the 22nd of June. There's still time to sign up. Just Google Growing Winter Veg Wrighton to get to the right page on our website. And if you want to learn anything more about the topics we've discussed or any other organic gardening conundrum, there's plenty of advice on our website at gardenorganic.org.uk. We always love to hear from you, so do get in touch with us via social media if you have any topics or questions you'd like us to cover on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. Our thanks again to our sponsors, the Organic Gardening Catalogue, and to Kevin MacLeod for providing the music. That's it, until next month.